Well, thank you again, team, for leading us in praising the Lord. That was just wonderful, wonderful. Tonight, I just wanted to uh, just mention to you as we begin, I did bring uh, some literature from the school that I serve, Heritage College and Seminary. I might say a little bit more about the school on another day, but tonight I just wanted to say our desire is to be a blessing to the church. Our deepest passion at the school and passion in my heart is that the local church is at the epicenter of God's plan for the world. And so the school exists to support the church. And one of the ways we do that is through resources. And I brought some resources that if they're useful to you in ministry, we'd like to make them available to you. Got a couple books back there. There's a Bible study that Linda and I wrote when we served at the Metropolitan Bible Church. And it's on 2 Corinthians, on becoming a courageous Christian. It's something you could do on yourself or if you want to have a small group. So that's there. And then when I was in Ottawa, I used to write for the newspaper. Uh, people would send in questions and they would have a, an imam and an uh, Anglican guy and a Hindu priest. A bunch of us uh, answer the same question in 300 words or less. And so these are the uh, answers that, uh, to some of the questions that I submit. It's called That's a Good Question. If you would like either of those, what I was thinking tonight is if you would just be willing to help the school in some ways, what you could do is just make a donation to the school, uh, whatever you want. Uh, there's not a set price on that. There are little cards back there. Just fill out one of the cards, put it in an envelope, and your money, you can give it to me, or probably you could drop it by the front desk and they'll get it to me. But if that's useful to you, please do that. Uh, we really long to have the church strengthened, and uh, we'd like to be part of that. The other thing I wanted to say is I just have a few copies left of a book that our faculty wrote on a variety of topics that relate to the church called For Christ and His Church. So if you're a pastor here on any level, if you're a pastor and you'd like one of those, I got like six or seven of these. I don't have too many of them, but I'd love to give one to you. So just talk to, come up afterwards and I'll make sure you get one, okay? And then last thing, there is a CD. Or some of our students created a worship CD. Uh, they did an excellent job. In fact, one of the, uh, I think Anne Marie said that one of the gals is from their church. And there's a handful of those. Uh, again, if you want to just make some donation to the school, that would be really appreciated, okay? Well, of the many Olympians that are taking the spotlight this week is a guy named Jordan Burroughs. Probably not a household name to you, but if you are into wrestling, collegiate wrestling or Olympic wrestling, Jordan Burroughs is kind of like one of those megastars. He won the 2012 Olympics. Uh, gold medal Olympic in his category of wrestling. And now he's trying to defend his Olympic medal this, starting this week. Uh, I read a little bit about Jordan. The guy is a machine. He went to the University of Nebraska where he, he grew up in a tough kind of environment. Sports was his ticket out. He got involved in it and went full hog, full hog whole hog into, into wrestling and was a dominant force in intercollegiate athletics went to the Olympics and just kind of just mowed through the opposition. And since the Olympics, he continues to just be a, a winning machine. So expectations are quite high for him as he tries to repeat his gold medal. But Jordan would tell you that the most important match in his life was not one that he won. It was one that he lost. It was where he was pinned. See, he spent most of his life pinning other people. If you're not a wrestling fan, you may not know this, but the way you win is you pin someone, right? You get their shoulder blades on the mat for a certain length of time, and then the referee calls it, and you win. So you pin, you win. You get pinned, you lose. 
And the most important match in his life was one where he got pinned. Now, you may or may not care at all about Olympic wrestling, but you should care something about wrestling. Here's why. The Bible uses wrestling as a picture to describe the Christian and the Christian life. Can anyone think of a verse that uses the idea of wrestling? Yeah, I heard it. Ephesians 4, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, Ephesians 6.12. In other words, the Bible pictures us in a number of metaphors. Some of them athletic. We're pictured as runners. We'll talk about that on Thursday night. But we're also pictured as wrestlers. And God wants us to, in, in the picture of wrestling in Ephesians 6, to be those who, who are well-armed and we can do hand-to-hand combat and win and wrestle well. But did you know that when it comes to spiritual wrestling, the most important match you will ever face is one that you need to lose? Tonight, I want to talk to you about how you win by getting pinned. And I know that's the case. I know that you ultimately win by getting pinned from the story of Jacob. Uh, Your mind may be going back to the story that mine is back in the book of Genesis, where Jacob has a wrestling match, a showdown after sundown, and he gets put on the smackdown and he loses. And yet that was the night he began to win. See, Jacob all his life had been a wrestler. The Bible tells us he was born wrestling. You remember the story that uh, his mother said she had twins and she said, man, they're like they're wrestling in my womb. And when his older brother Esau came out first, Jacob was right behind grabbing his brother's heel. And that would set the tenor for their relationship over the coming years. Jacob would spend much of his early years, his young adult years, out wrestling his older, slower brother Esau. And then later he would go and have a wrestling match with his father-in-law Laban. And they would have some wins and losses going back and forth. And Jacob had all of these wrestling matches and usually he came out on top. Usually he was pinning someone else. Until the night he got pinned. And that was the night he started to win. So tonight I want to talk to you about the spiritual lesson of winning by getting pinned. Because here's my contention. Some of us here are a lot like Jacob. Some of us have spent our life trying to wrestle a blessing out of life. We've tried to wrestle with other people. It could have been our parents. It could have been our siblings. It could be our spouse. It could be those around us. And we've spent our whole life trying to figure out ways to get on top. Tonight, we're going to see that there's a spiritual lesson in Jacob's life that reminds us you really don't start winning until you get pinned. For you to see that, for me to see that, we're going to have to go to the book of Genesis tonight, Genesis 32. So would you join me there, please? I want to talk to you about winning by getting pinned. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? What is God saying through the story recorded in Genesis 32 and 33 about Jacob? Tonight, we sang about the God of Jacob. And then the next line was, you use the weak to lead the strong. Tonight, Jacob gets weak. He gets pinned so that God can use him. And that's where we're going to be. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this most fascinating story. This is, this is like the highlight reel stories of the Old Testament. This would be on it because it's so dramatic, and it's so uh, engaging, and yet it's so instructive. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you tonight would take your word once again as you do Every time we humbly open it and you would allow your spirit to take the word and apply it to us. Some of us here know we have a lot of Jacob in us. 
We've been wrestlers, we've been schemers, we've been finaglers a, a big part of our life. It's how we've learned to survive. It's even how we've learned to get ahead. And I'm asking that tonight you will remind us again of the blessing of getting pinned. And I ask that you will do that for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 32, we pick up the story in verse 1. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Jacob also went on his way. The angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanaim. Now it's interesting here, we're, we're kind of parachuting into the middle of Jacob's story. By this time in life, he's already kind of had the duel with his older brother, kind of faked out his older brother, pinned him. And when Esau found out, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. As soon as dad dies, I'm getting you. Jacob and his mother heard that. And so they send Jacob off to Haran. He goes there and marries. You know, he gets two wives for the deal, uh, two for the price of one. He didn't, he didn't expect to get two. He thought he was getting one, and he ended up getting the older sister. And then he got the younger one. He spent the next num- almost 20 years in Haran kind of fighting it out with his father-in-law, Laban, who was a lot like him. And now he's on his way back. God has told him, go back to the place of blessing. Go back to the promised land. I will bless you. I will be with you. So Jacob takes his two feuding wives and their two, his two concubines. He takes his 11 children and a whole bunch of speckled and spotted sheep if you know that story, and he makes his way back towards the promised land. He's on the east side of the Jordan River, about ready to cross over into the place of blessing. But God has something for him. As he approaches the river, the Jabbok River, near the Jordan, it says in verse 1, he saw angels, angels of God. Now that was significant for Jacob, wasn't it? Because when he left And he was running. Do you remember how he came to a place, put his head down on a rock, slept, and he had the vision, the vision of the ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder, we used to sing. It was the vision of like heaven opened up. He saw the angels of God coming down. So when he leaves the promised land, God says, I will be with you. Now as he's coming back, he sees another vision of angels, which to him is a confirmation. God is with me. God told me to come back. This will be the place of blessing. But Jacob knows that going back to the promised land means going back to some unfinished business, his brother Esau. Esau had a grudge. Esau had said he would take Jacob out. He would kill him. And now Jacob is going back to the place where he knows Esau will hear about it and could come after him. So Jacob begins to form a strategy. He's going to figure this out. He's he's had problems all his life, and he's always been able to overcome them, to come up with a way to get out of tight spots. He has another plan in mind now. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. He's going to be preemptive here. Rather than wait for Esau to hear about him, he's going to say, Esau, I'm coming back. He sent... Um, messengers to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Esau had migrated south of the Death Sea in the area that we know as Edom, okay? So he sends messengers, verse 4, he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. 
So here's what you're supposed to say. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have returned there and and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkey and sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. See, he's testing the waters, isn't he? He wants to figure out how is it with Esau? Is Esau still mad? Has Esau gotten over it? Has Esau moved on or not? Well, the messengers come back, bad news. Look at verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now, what does that say to you if you're Jacob? Is that good or bad? Like if Esau just wanted to come and give you a hug, he probably didn't need a 400-man escort, right? Like 400 men, that's like an army. And Jacob knows that he is now way overmatched. So what's he going to do? Well, he's been in tight spots before, and he's always figured a way to kind of do a reversal, to get on top of the other guy. So look what he does next, verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, here's his thinking, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So he's, he's ready to cut his losses. He's, he divides everything into two groups thinking, maybe, maybe half of us will survive this. Verse 9, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So Jacob prays to God. God, you told me to go back. You said you would prosper me. Please save me. After he says, amen, look what he does next. Verse 13, he spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in care of his servants. Each herd by itself said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do, do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he, Jacob, is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. So you get, the, you get what's happening here, right? He divides uh, these gifts, different kinds of herds, little flocks. He's got sheep. He's got goats. He's got 
It seems like donkeys and camels. He's got all these different herds, and one after another, he has them moving out so that Esau will successively come upon them, each one saying, these are a gift. These are a gift. And he's thinking to himself, maybe by the time Esau gets all these gifts and arrives with me, he's in a better mood. Now, there's a couple ways we can read Jacob's motives on what he's doing right here. A couple different ways. If you want to read them cynically, you can say Jacob's up to his old tricks. He is trying to finagle his way out of an old spot. He's trying to pin his brother again. He's going to kill him with kindness. And if you have a cynical view of it, you're saying, and his prayer there in the middle, like he's praying, God, please help me. He was just covering his bases with God too. Like, I'm going to do all I can. It wouldn't hurt to pray. You ever had people say that to you? You say, you know, can I pray for you? And they'll say something like, well, it hasn't come to that yet. In other words, prayer is the last resort. If nothing else works, then we pray. Could be that Jacob is kind of calling out to God, covering that base, covering the gifts base. Could be that. That's a cynical view. The more charitable view says that Jacob actually is starting to crack, and he's starting to call out to God, and he's saying, God, you promised I'm counting on you. And the gifts that he's doing are not being wily, it's being wise. He's not, he's not just kind of, you know, trying to finagle his brother. He's actually just saying, you know, I do want to bless my brother. I kind of, kind of, you know, took advantage of him before, and now I want to try to make amends. I want to give some gifts. Could be that. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but in your heart, vote one way or the other. Is Jacob doing the cynical thing, or is Jacob actually doing the sincere thing? The reason I'm not asking you to vote is because we simply don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that even after Jacob does all of this, whether through sincerity or whether through just kind of plain old street smarts, we do know that Jacob is aware it's still not enough. He still comes to the place where he goes, it's not going to work. Like, I'm out of options. This isn't going to be good enough. The reason I know that is because that night, Jacob stays at the camp and he can't sleep. Like, he is still revved up about this. He's still worked up. In fact, look at verse 21. It says, he himself spent the night in the camp. But verse 22 says, that night, Jacob got up and took. In other words, Jacob tries to spend the night there, but he's not sleeping through this night. Jacob is facing the fact he is in a difficult place. He has come to the end of himself. He has come to the end of his options, and that is precisely where God wants him to be. See, tonight I want to give you some lessons that I think come out of this passage that were not just true for Jacob. They're true for all of the Jacobs that are here tonight, all of us. And the first lesson that I'm going to take out of this is simply this. God wants to bring you to the place of blessing, just like he wanted to bring Jacob to the place of blessing. But the first lesson is this. To bring you to the place of blessing, God will first bring you to the end of yourself. It's just the way he works. To bring you to the place of blessing, God will take you to the end of yourself. God wants to bring his people to the place of blessing, but he knows that in most of our cases, before he can bring us to the place of blessing, he has to bring us to another place, and that's to the end of ourselves. Jacob's come to the end of his options. He's come to the place where he has tried all that he knows to do, and he knows it's not enough. And that's what so many of us do when we hit problems in life. We hit problems in life, and like Jacob, our first response is like, okay, how am I going to fix this one? 
And many of us, what we do is we, we kind of go into problem-solving mode, and we think it's up to us to solve all the problems. So we arrange our assets, whatever those are. We position our people, whoever they are. We try to do whatever we can to protect ourselves, to get ourselves to the place we want to be. And often God brings us to the place where we're, we're forced to say, it's not going to work. Like, I've done everything I know. It's not enough. Checkmate. I, 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 I'm at a place where I'm at the end of myself, and it's precisely then that we are ready for an encounter with God when we come to the end of ourselves, because it took Jacob coming to that place before he could have his encounter with God. Look at this encounter. This is where it gets really interesting, right? Pick it up with me. Let's read, go back in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is where it gets fascinating. You got the picture? Jacob's there. He's alone in the camp. He's already sent, you know, the gifts with his servants towards Esau. And that night he's restless. So he sends his wives and his children and his possessions across the ford of the Jabbok River. So he now is all by himself. He's come to the end of himself, literally. And suddenly he thinks he's all alone. He gets attacked. Somebody in the darkness jumps him. This is not a fight that Jacob went looking for. He was not the initiator of this fight. It says there in verse uh, 24, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. The Hebrew word for wrestle is linked to the Hebrew word for dust. It's the idea of they're rolling in the dust. Can you picture this? It's sundown. It's dark. It's in the middle of the night. Jacob, all he knows is somebody has come from the shadows, has grabbed him, and now the two of them are rolling in the dust, wrestling this thing out. What's fascinating, as they wrestle, it says that the man who was wrestling Jacob couldn't take him out. Look at what it says. Verse 25, when the man, that's the one wrestling him, saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, I want you to think about that with me. It says the man who's wrestling with Jacob saw he couldn't overpower him, so he touched his, socket, his hip and put it out of joint. Don't you think that means that he could have overpowered him? Like if you can touch somebody's hip and dislocate it, you're going to win a lot of matches. I don't know a lot about wrestling, but I have read some about some. They have names for their different moves that they make when they're wrestling. There's like the double leg drop. There's the fireman carry. There's the pancake. Some of you who've done wrestling, you, you can probably rattle off a whole bunch of these. But this guy has a new move. It's called the hip dislocator. <laughs> and it's a killer move. So can you picture the two of them are wrestling around and this man says, I can't overpower you. Now, we keep that in your head. 
because it's clear that he can't, he just touches Jacob's hip, and J Jacob's hip is immediately out of joint. Anybody here ever had a hip go out of joint? Yikes, I never have, but I've heard about it, and I've heard that people who have their hip put out of the socket don't just kind of keep doing life as normal. You would think any other mortal would have cried uncle at this point, like, okay, I win, I give up. Not Jacob. Jacob's hip is out of socket, but he's starting to realize something. He doesn't even know who he's wrestling, but he figures out whoever this is has to be somewhat supernatural. Because humans can't just touch you on the hip and dislocate your hip. So he knows something's going on. He's already had visions of angels. So he's thinking, maybe an angel is after me. He knows something supernatural, but he also knows this. Whoever this powerful opponent is, is choosing not to finish him off. He's choosing to prolong the match. He wants something out of this. He could end this match in a hurry. If he can dislocate his hip, he could dislocate his neck. And Jacob's realizing this person is choosing to keep wrestling with me. So Jacob cries out. Look at, look at the man verse actually says, let me go for it's daybreak. Sun's starting to come up. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's figure it out. You, though you seem like my opponent, actually can be my helper. You could be my savior. You could be the one who helps me. And I'm going to cling to you for all I'm worth. I can't really walk right now, but I can hang on tight and I can cry out loud. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And that's precisely what the opponent was looking for. You see, it brings us to a second lesson, I think, about spiritual wrestling. First thing what we've seen is to bring you to a place of blessing, which God wants to do, he will often bring you to the end of yourself. But the second point that I think comes out of this text would be this. To bring you to a place of blessing, God will wrestle you to a point of dependence. Not just that you're at the end of yourself. He wants something more than that. He wants you to move from the end of yourself to dependence upon him. He wants you to be like Jacob, where you're just holding on for dear life and saying, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I, I, I don't know all that's happening right now, but I know I need your help. It seems like you're, you're taking me out, but I can tell somehow you're actually for me. It's interesting a lot of times in our life, we think that what's coming at us is meant to harm us. And sometimes it is. We have an adversary, the evil adversary, who does try to hurt us. He growls, he growls like a roaring lion. But Jacob is learning another lesson. And that is sometimes the one who's wrestling us and seeking to pin us is not Satan, but God. I remember when I was in university, a speaker by the name of Ron Dunn came to our college. I went to Biola College out in Los Angeles, and Ron Dunn said this. He said, most of my life I thought I was fighting against Satan, only to realize that much of my life I was actually wrestling against God. Like God was trying to pin me. I thought this must be from the enemy, and actually it was God trying to break my stubborn, independent will. So Jacob comes to the place where he realizes that his only hope for winning is clinging and crying out to God. It's interesting. If you'll keep your place here, and if you're brave, go try to find the book of Hosea. Okay, keep your place here and try to find Hosea. I say if you're brave because I put a tab in my Bible so I could turn right there. 
Uh, one of the most embarrassing things to do as a speaker, by the way, is to tell people to turn to a minor prophet and then not be able to find it, right? So to minimize that risk, I put a little tab in so I can get there in a hurry. But if you want to turn to Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, or write it down to look up later. Listen to what later a prophet says about this wrestling match about Jacob. This is where kind of you see the uh, Old Testament author, the prophet Hosea, make the point I've just had, which is to bring you to a place of blessing. God will wrestle you to a place of dependence. Listen to Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4 talks about Jacob, and it says this, In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. Okay? As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. Now, in Hebrew poetry, the way it often works is that there are usually, well, often there are two lines. And the lines, they rhyme ideas more than rhyme words. You know, it's not just like Jack and Jill went up the hill. They'll rhyme, one line will rhyme conceptually, or it'll be a contrast. Here, the first line, here the first line of verse four. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. Got that one? Here's the second line. He wept and begged for his favor. I think the second line is telling us how he won, how he overcame the angel that wrestled. How did he win? He, he, he won by weeping and begging for his favor. He won by coming to the place where he realized he was pinned, and all he could do was hang on and say, help. All I can do is say, God, I need you. See, to bring you to a place of blessing, God is willing to bring you to the end of yourself and then wrestle you to a point of dependence. He did that for Jacob. And after he gets you to a place of dependence, then he's able to move you to the place of blessing. If we go back to Genesis 32, we finish out the story, and I have a third thing I want you to see. We're back in chapter 32. We've we've read through verse 26. Let me read now verses 27 through the end of the chapter. Jacob's just said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, this is fascinating. Look at the next thing that happens. The man, this is the one wrestling him, asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and as he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites did not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let me give you a third thing that comes out of this passage that I find really helpful. To bring you to a place of blessing, God will take you to the end of yourself. Some of you have said, I've been there. He's done that. He has cornered me. He has checkmated me. Some of you are there tonight. Some of you have come to, J- to 
fair havens. And like Jacob, God has been putting you in a place where you're coming to the end of yourself. You're surveying your options for what you got ahead of you. You've been trying to make it work, maybe with rebellious teenagers, maybe with a company that's struggling, maybe with a ministry that's not going as you wish. You've been dealing with this stuff all along, and you've come to a point of exasperation and exhaustion. You've come to the end of yourself. God needs you to get to that place, by the way, so that you can move to the next place, which is a place of dependence, where you say, God, I need you. I cannot fix life, do life by myself. I'm clinging to you, and I'm crying to you. Now, when you get to the place of dependence, you come to the third thing I think this text is telling us, and I'd put it this way. To bring you to a place of blessing, God changes you into a new person. See, what God is going to do here is to do a major renovation in Jacob's life. And to bring him to the place of blessing, Jacob had to be a new person. New place meant a new person. To bring you to a place of blessing, God will change you. God will change you into a new person. That's what happens, I think, in the exchange in verses 27 and verse 28. Is it curious to you at all that when Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me, the man says to him, what is your name? Do you really think that this opponent didn't know who he was wrestling? Jacob's the only guy there. Do you think he really was going, I'm going to make sure I still have the right guy. It's kind of dark out here. And so before I go any farther, I need to find, are you, are you Jacob? That's not, there was no need for information there. So why is the angel of the Lord asking Jacob, What's your name? I think it's because he wants Jacob to own it. Jacob to say, look what Jacob says. What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now, in Hebrew culture, your name often described your nature. That's why when we talk about the name of God, it's often the description of God. What's God like? And he has many names, right? Jehovah Rophe, all the different names of God. Well, that was true of humans. When they were given a name, often that name was to signify who they were. So God changed names a lot of time. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And those, those were significant. So when God says, the angel of the Lord says to Jacob, what is your name? Jacob, in a sense, is having to confess his nature because the name Jacob it means heel grabber, right? It means, so he's having to say, it's, it's essentially like he's saying, who are you? And Jacob is forced to say, I am heel grabber. I'm the guy who all my life has been grasping, fighting, trying to get ahead, pulling people back, trying to push myself ahead. I'm Jacob. And then the opponent says to him, no longer. It's not who you are anymore. And he gives him a new name. Did you see that? He says, Please, uh, in verse 28, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. You know what the name Israel means? It means he strives. There's a little of ambiguity on the Hebrew word, and that is that he strives with God, is that God strives, but it has this idea of striving. And what he's saying is, you're no longer heel grabber. You've got a different name. You've come to realize You've just been wrestling with God. You've been striving with God all your life. You've been trying to wring out the blessing that God wanted to give you. And now I want you to know your name, who you are. Your relationship is not about how you grab. It's how God has grabbed you, and you have wrestled with him. 
changes his name. See, when God wants to change a person, he gives them a new name. See, when, when some of you, if I were to ask you who your, what your name is, we, I know what you, you're going to say, my name is Steve or my name is Mary. But if I were to ask you, what is your name in like, what is your identity? Some of you, before you knew Christ, you would have had to say, you know what my name is? My name is Cynic. That's what I am. All my life, I've been cynical. Some of you would say, my name is Party Boy. All my life, that's who I was. Some of you would say, my name is Victim. I've lived my whole life as a victim. Some of you would say, you know, my name is Philanderer. And you would have to say, this is who I am. And when God comes to change a person, he says, not anymore. I'm giving you a new name. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And now God says, I have a new name for you. You are son. You are daughter of mine. You are dearly loved. You are forgiven. You are chosen before the foundations of the earth. You are the object of my affection. You are a great sinner, but now you are a saint. Isn't it amazing? The New Testament believers were called saints. They weren't some icons. What it meant is holy one. You've been set apart. You see, how God changes us is when we cry out to him, and we do this when we come to him for salvation. We cry out to him. He changes us by changing our identity. He says, you got a new name. Whatever you were before, if you were philanderer, if you were cynic, if you were that, that's done. We're not that anymore. You are now this. You are now what I call you. You are who I say you are. He changes our identity, and then like he does with Jacob, that change in identity becomes, starts to make a change in our integrity. See, we won't go into the chapter 33. You know what happens in the next chapter? Jacob starts acting like his new name. He starts changing. He goes out and meets his brother, and his brother is amazingly gracious. He says, Jacob, I don't need all these things. I'm a wealthy man. I don't need your cattle. I don't need your camels. And Jacob, who all his life was the grabber, you would think he'd say, well, great. If you don't need it, I'm happy to have it. Jacob becomes the giver, and he says, no, I want you to have it, Esau. That's a change for Jacob. He didn't give anything away. And now even when he doesn't have to, he's given something to his brother. There's starting to be a change in who he is. He's moving into the place of blessing. His identity, his integrity changes. Now, just as a little, uh, little qualifier, his identity doesn't lead to a complete change in integrity all at once. It doesn't happen that way for us. There's a growth process. In fact, it seems we're not sure. He says to Esau, Esau, you go back home, I'll come see you. Well, we never read in the text that he goes and sees his brother, so we're not sure that he was completely changed overnight in terms of his behavior. But he forever would be a different person, and God gave him a reminder of that night. How does the story end? How does, as the sun rises, kind of picturing a new day in his life, what do we know about Jacob that we didn't know the day before? How does he walk? He's got a limp, doesn't he? The rest of his life, he limps. Now, the God who crippled him, could have completely healed him. But God didn't choose to do that, did he? Why do you think that was? Do you think it would be so that Jacob would have a step-by-step -step reminder of the night he got pinned, of the night when he came to the realization that God, to bring you to the place of blessing, will bring you to the end of yourself, will wrestle you to a point of dependence, and then will change you into a new person? 
And as Jacob limps into the sunrise, past Peniel, the face of God, as he's seen the face of God, Jacob knows that life has been forever changed because he got pinned to win. I started by tonight by telling you the story of Jordan Burroughs, the young uh, American wrestler who's going to go for another gold. It's an interesting story about Jordan Burroughs. After he won the gold in 2012 in London, he came back to the States, and he was a celebrity. He was doing the circuit. Everybody wanted a piece of him. And, he, and what happened was he, his ego, he said, he got huge. He had been raised in a church, but he never really gave his life to Christ. By his own admission, he said, I kind of went to church, but it didn't mean much to me. And now that I was Olympic gold medalist, he goes, I didn't feel I had any need for Christ in my life. So he goes off living large and in charge, and God brings him to the end of himself. Within a matter of months, all the, you know, all the people that were his entourage have faded and gone on to other things, and he was left alone and empty with a gold medal. And he began to kind of bottom out. A friend invited him to a fellowship of Christian athletes camp, and he went to this camp supposedly as the hero to talk to these high school kids, and he said he got to the camp, and here were all these high school athletes who should have been excited that he was there, and he said they were more excited to hear about God than to meet me. And he said, and I watched these young high school wrestlers, and I saw in their lives a commitment to Christ I didn't have. And at that camp, God pinned him. He came to the place in his life where he said, I don't have Christ in my life the way these kids have Christ in their life. Here I am. I'm the Olympic medalist. They're just high school kids, but they, they have something I want. He surrenders his life to Christ at that camp, receives Christ, and he continues to wrestle, but now with a whole new focus. In fact, let me read you a statement that uh, Jordan Burroughs has said about these Olympics, and I believe he wrestles Friday night. But th- listen to Burroughs. This is what he is quoted as saying. Whatever happens, this is his quote, I am not going to be defined by a gold medal. I'm going to be defined by my faith. See, he's a new man. The old Jordan Burroughs, it was all about being a champion wrestler. And now Jordan Burroughs still wrestles. But he knows his identity is found in Christ through his faith. So I want to say to you, if God has brought you to the place, into yourself, dependence on him, changing you to a new person, that's how you win by being pinned. Don't fight it. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help us to be people that embrace rather than resist your wrestling us to the ground. You are an expert at knowing how to arrange life circumstances to bring us to the place of complete surrender and dependency upon you. And as we cling to you and trust in you by faith, thank you that you graciously choose to give us a new identity and to change us so that our integrity, you change us into a new person. We love that you did that in Jacob's life. We love that you can do that in ours. Please continue your good work, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. I think Hinsing is going to start here in about 10 minutes.